Environmental Laws, Thompson Hines Environmental Law Podcast. In each episode, you'll hear from subject matter specialists at Thompson Hine, and sometimes special guests, on current events and hot button issues in environmental law topics covering land, air, water, and safety, laws. I'm Tanya Nesbitt, a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental and Product Liability Practice Groups. I reside in our Atlanta and DC offices. I'm also a member of the firm's ESG Collaborative, where I assist companies with mitigation and litigation related to greenwashing claims. While I regularly handle all types of environmental law, I specialize in environmental permitting and federal public lands issues. In today's episode, we'll be discussing environmental justice. Here to join me in this conversation is our special guest, Benita Johnson. Benita is a microbiologist employed by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in Atlanta, Georgia. Benita has notable accomplishments, which include service on the Gulf Coast in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. There, she coordinated mobile laboratories at two locations, which tested drinking and recreational water for bacteria. Benita was also one of 10 EPA employees selected nationwide for the first EPA Science and Policy Regional Research Partnership Program. Welcome, Benita. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really excited about today's conversation. Um, as an environmental lawyer, there are uh, particular trendy terms uh, or buzzwords in the industry. And I think environmental justice has been one, I think, for the past few years now. And although the concept is not new, I think that sort of policy around it and regulations around it are going through um, a, a particularly critical period in our history and lifetime. And so it's, it's exciting to witness that, be a part of that, and, and obviously work with clients to address those, those risks. Let's just start off with, with you telling us a little bit about your work and your time at EPA. Sure. I've been with the EPA now for about 24 years and have served in various capacities, as you mentioned, being a microbiologist. Now I am a senior um, scientist working in the water division. I'm environmental justice coordinator and have had the pleasure of integrating EJ and equity into our programs. I serve on the Environmental Justice Advisory Council as well as the White House Environmental Justice Interagency Council. Okay, so so what is the White House Environmental Justice Interagency Council and, and how did you become a member? I became a member through recommendation. Okay. Through people observing the work that I've been doing with communities and helping to address their specific issues. I partnered um, about 56 communities with academic institutions over the years. Uh, many of those communities have been in a dire straits for a long time and was not getting the attention and support that was needed. But through a program that one of my mentors created, I was able to partner them with academic institutions who work to do the research necessary to find out what was going to be beneficial in addressing their issues. And from there, I expanded to forming collaboratives, which included not just the academic institutions, but public and private entities as well. And so as part of your work on the council, you also co-lead a regional committee? Is that correct? 
Yes, I do. It's kind of deceptive, though, because it's not a regional committee by location. It's called the regional committee because it's comprised of people who work in all across federal agencies, but who are located in the regional offices of those agencies and the field offices. So it's not, say, geographically, but it's across the nation, and it's based on where you work within those agencies. The principal members of the councils are typically those located in headquarters. Those are our cabinet members and administrators. And this particular committee is comprised of the experts who are located in regional and field offices. And so just to give uh, uh, um, the audience sort of a flavor with the types of federal agencies you work with, could you um, just provide a few examples? Sure. Most of, all, most of the major federal agencies that have some environmental focus, um, DOI, FEMA, USDA, Fish and Wildlife Services, DOJ, DOE, Bureau of Land Management, EPA, of course. Again, for the audience, what is environmental justice and, and how did the term uh, come about? Where it's the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of people, regardless as to their race, nationality, wherever they come from, uh, as it relates to environmental policies and practices, decisions that are made that impact them. And this is the, the EPA definition I will give you, is the environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. And in short, it's equitable benefits and burdens. No one community should bear the brunt of burdens because of their socioeconomic status or their race. There should not be one community who received all of the benefits because of those factors as well. And, and certainly um, as a, a lawyer and officer of the court, right, that is, um, you know, part of the, the work that we do for, for our clients, right, trying to get to and advocate for a just result. I'm just curious because you have um, such a unique science background, how do you think that informs your, your perspective on environmental justice? Thank you. I, I love that question because it really made me think. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to my roots as a microbiologist, as a microbiologist, you're trained in your thinking. You're aware that there are things that are impacting our environment, impacting people that you can't see. And so you're trained to go beneath the surface absolutely, and look at those things. And that's very similar to environmental justice. And also the incorporation of, of data, right, and as part of your work. And Absolutely. Sure. Analyzing the data. But, you know, I think what impacted me greatly was my service in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina as well. Um, seeing the impacts of, of the devastation on the people and having the desire to want to make a difference in their lives has really driven me in this EJ world. So we, we have a, a current administration that I, that I think has been quite swift, really, in the first couple days 
um, yes. taking action through executive order um, in establishing, I think, what the, the um, administration is referring to as a whole of government approach in sort of addressing um, equity um, in the environment, but I think you're seeing it in other aspects as well. And so there are a, a lot of new acronyms, a lot of new tools, yes. um, a lot of <laughs> metrics. And so I just wanted to touch upon some of the highlights. So one of them is the Justice 40 initiative. Um, can you tell our audience a little bit about what that initiative means for the administration and its work and priorities? Sure. In one of the early executive orders, 14008, issued by the Biden-Harris administration, was um, included in there, the Justice 40 initiative. And that is the driver in terms of us reaching underserved or disadvantaged communities and providing at least 40% of the investments to those communities. This is an intentional act of reaching out to those communities who may not have had the attention and support they needed over the years. And those investments may be monetarily in terms of funding to address their issues, but also capacity development, technical assistance, outreach, engaging with them through communication and on the ground activities. So an another uh, new tool, and I think obviously some of these are um, used in conjunction um, with some of these initiatives like Justice 40, um, but I, I see a lot of confusion between the, the climate and economic justice screening tool and the EPA EJ screen tool, um, which really are um, supposed to be used or intended to be used um, quite differently. Um, can you explain uh, what both tools are and sort of how the administration intends them to be used? Sure. With the climate and economic justice screening tools, that was created under the order that I cited. With this particular order, there is an emphasis on climate and clean energy. It's tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad. That's the title for that order. So the climate and economic justice screening tool is a way of determining which communities should receive those investments is to identify the disadvantaged communities using data sets that are indicators of burden. So that includes climate change, energy, health, housing, legacy pollution, transportation, water, wastewater, and workforce development. With the EJ screening tool, that's also a tool where you can analyze data. However, that was developed a while back and we had a recent update last year, losing track of my time. <laughs> um, but that one, you are able to compare and determine whether there's disproportionate burdens in one area versus another. That uses census data and there's CDC data in there as well as well as EPA data that maps location, proximity to facilities, air quality, and you can see whether one particular area, also it has socioeconomic, so it has environmental and socioeconomic data. And because there's census data in there, there is a breakdown by race, 
age, education, high school, college, home ownership, the age of homes. So you have a lot of different factors that you can use to establish a profile for communities and then go by and compare that with the nation, with the state, from one community to another. Uh, one particular community I worked with in Florida is the Northport St. Joe community. And there used to be a train track, which oftentimes divides the black and the white communities. But you can compare those two, the Northport Joe side and the Southport St. Joe side. So just in brief, briefly, um, the clean, the climate and economic justice screening tool is looking at those disadvantaged communities based on those things that I mentioned. And it also already has a list of communities in it that are labeled as disadvantaged. The first iteration that came out, many people commented, including myself, that it did not include many of the disadvantaged communities that we know that we've been working with. So about five, 4,000 communities were added based on those public comments. And I know that there's been some back and forth on cumulative impacts as well. Can you, and, and, and this, you know, th that term sort of comes up in the National Environmental Policy Act, particularly when you talk about federal agencies doing an analysis to determine in environmental effects based on, on decision-making um, and also in the environmental justice context. But could you talk a little bit about why that term and in consideration of it may be important to, to work in the environmental justice context? It's really important because there are multiple stressors oftentimes, especially when you're looking at underserved communities um, who have not benefited from reinvestment to ensure that um, their structure is solid, who have received emissions from various facilities over time. And, and so you have water quality issues oftentimes as well if they're discharging things. So we have to look at things cumulatively, not just by finger stressor to make the best decisions. We have to look at the totality of things to really be able to evaluate the impact that is made on that particular community. So with um, we have some different tools that we've been using recently. And um, did you mention the EJ index? I did not. Okay. Yeah. Okay. If, if you want to okay. talk, touch on that briefly. Well, that combines um, information from the census, from the CDC, um, from Mine Safety and Health Administration, and through that, you're able to see the cumulative stressors for various uh, communities and to analyze the impact of those uh, in terms of environmental injustice on the health for census tracts. And those are divisions of counties for which the census collects data. And this index, it ranks the tract based on several environmental, social, and health factors. Some agencies are further along in terms of cumulative impacts. EPA still has some work to do in terms of how we analyze information 
Um, we have included cumulative impacts in the recent legal tools document that kind of um, points out some of the regulatory power that we have in enforcing or including EJ into our different programs. And so I just wanted to turn to some of the more um, controversial or aspects of EJ that, that create more spirited discussion. <laughs> and so uh, one of them is, you know, I hear this from uh, lawyers and non-lawyers, I think alike doing this type of work um, is that, you know, how do we get the messaging right on this, right? How do you get stakeholders to be engaged when they may be skeptical or have sort of knee-jerk reactions to this term environmental justice? Um, I think there's there's um, ample criticism about it. Um, and how do you um, sort of deal with that that pushback when you need um, you know true stakeholder engagement and buy-in? And so I was curious as to whether you had some best practices or thoughts on that. That's quite interesting. I was in a meeting not too long ago where uh, a citizen asked if they could say racism. That reminded me that there are various perceptions when it comes to talking about environmental justice. Uh, some people do think of it in terms of race and they view it as people seeking special treatment for a certain race when we're just seeking equity. We just want to make sure that everyone is protected from whatever environmental harm may come their way. And we want to address those who have been experiencing it for a long time. The best way um, that I have addressed the issue is just having very clear conversations uh, to make sure that everyone in the room is on the same page in terms of the terminology that we're using and to try to address any misconceptions that people have that frame their thoughts that make them take a certain position when it comes to environmental justice. I often say there's not a stop sign for air pollution. It's not just gonna go to that stop sign, but it travels. Right, right. <laughs> so it's just varying levels of impact that people feel. This one is closer to the source, so they get a greater amount of it, but it's gonna tr travel down to your area if you're close by. So Tom, sometimes when you put things in terms where people can relate to it, then it helps the conversation. And certainly, certainly, right. And, and, and certainly now I think that it, it's, it's hard to find really any community, I think across the US that is not feeling some type of impact related to, to climate or pollution. Right, um, right. And so I think, you know, drilling it down on that level certainly helps you know move the conversation forward another i think uh controversial conversation uh is that or, or tension is that i think many may view environmental justice as an additional hurdle um that will cause more delay and increase burden in in the context of environmental permitting when many communities there i think already feel that that permitting decisions don't move quickly enough already. Um, what are your thoughts on, on how um, those tensions may be ameliorated and how we can still center sort of 
the considerations around vulnerable communities and equity, but still get to a solution that that helps industry sort of get the decisions they need and, and get the country the development we need uh, to ameliorate things like the air pollution that you, that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I think everyone should want to make a good faith effort to make sure that what they're doing is based on the best available data and that um, they're not going to cause undue harm because of their decision. As you say, some people oftentimes see it as burdensome, but it takes time to make a decision. It takes time to evaluate the data. Better safe than sorry. And there's so many people that uh, deserve apologies because people did not take the time to evaluate the data. Certainly permitting and um, environmental justice have been connected for a long time. And as you say, um, some people see it as extra work, but we're happy that some of our states have taken on some permitting policies whereby they look at how many stressors are in a certain area. They're looking at in a sense, the cumulative impact. Um, they're looking at um, how much certain communities are taking on already. And in some cases, decisions are not made solely on that, but it's a factor. And, and that's a good faith effort to at least evaluate and make that determination based on including that information and not disregarding it. Um, unfortunately, there are bad actors, and we're definitely encouraging people to start at the beginning of the process and not later, because that creates some bad feelings as well. You know, people feel like you're trying to hide something. You didn't want to include people and in the process. Trust, right? Right, right. So, and, and then of course, there's some people who feel like, well, if I include people, then I'm going to get feedback early on, and that's going to make it harder. Sure. Sure. But uh, there should be a good faith effort. And early on, it's better. The people who are going to be impacted by the decisions, they deserve to have an opportunity to weigh in. Meaningful involvement, that is environmental justice. So one thing I wanted to touch on before we conclude in a, in a few moments is the Inflation Reduction Act. And there is significant commitment to to provide grants, to uh, provide public and private partnership for environmental justice in numerous ways regarding, you know, air pollution. We have grants for programs in in schools. I mean, I think it's it's a pretty comprehensive um, and and monumental piece of legislation. I know that, that we're still at a stage where a lot of guidance is needed as to how to sort of access that funding. Um, and I know there's there's some concerns of, you know, will smaller entities who can do this work and 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 maybe in the best place to do it because they they know those communities, will they be able to compete sort of for those those grants and opportunities? And I was wondering if you could share some information on, you know, whether there there's going to be help for grant writing and partnership so that those organizations can compete for those dollars and and ultimately, build those projects to fulfill sort of the the spirit of the legislation? Sure, a significant amount of money, I'm talking about billions, have gone out 
in this administration to support our smaller underserved communities. Um, just last week, I believe it was, that um, the EPA issued about $117 million to about 17 or 18 entities, their technical assistance centers. And the, the abbreviation is TIC-TAC. That's what everybody's calling them. <laughs> but their specific goal is to help those smaller communities, help those communities who have maybe tried or didn't have access to information to get grants. So to build their capacity to help them write the grants. And they're partnering with various um, entities. I think there's about 160 spoke. And I had to look that up initially. I said, what's the spoke? <laughs> <laughs> but basically the spokes of a tire, of a bicycle wheel right. is what it's referring to. How, you know, the, the outer part is the, the core, but then you have all of these spokes inside the wheel that are working to help it move. So there's about 160 folks that are partners with these 17, 18 entities that will be working with the communities as well. This is unprecedented. This is the first time we've seen this type of support and engagement ever. And certainly I think we'll definitely make some impact. It reminds me of the collaboratives that I formed over the last few years and how effective we were. One community got three grants in less than two years. Wow. When you have the right people at the table with that technical support and knowledge who know how to write the grants and who are willing to provide that information to communities, it's so much. They're empowered. Sure. And, and ultimately, that's what we want to see. We want to build their capacity so they're able to do this themselves. But we do have these technical centers now. And I think they'll start operating probably around June or so. But they were just awarded. So we're looking forward to seeing that impact. Um, as well, we have a grant maker award that's going out. I think it closes in May. And this is where we have we're issuing grants to larger institutions who will also provide sub awards to the smaller ones. So this is in support of our communities as well, who may not have had that access before. But we've seen over the years that certain people have that capacity and you know they were gonna get a grant. But this is an uh, attempt to be intentional to connect people with those smaller communities who have been left out. Just to, to wrap, I, I know that you'd mentioned environmental justice, uh, really meaning meaningful community engagement in one of your prior responses, which I think is, is a really good way to, to think of environmental justice. Understandably, you know, this subject matter is very dynamic, it's spirited, it's um, evolving still. And it's overwhelming. I mean, I think we've we've also we've talked about a number of tools here. I think there's a mm -hmm. there's a lot to learn and understand, particularly for entities who are trying to be good actors, businesses who are really trying to make the right decisions and establish themselves as community stakeholders and engaging feedback from the communities in which they are essentially impacting. 
Where would you recommend that they start and dive in to sort of get their arms around this work? For companies, I recently learned of, like, there's a whole sector <laughs> for companies who are interested in, in EJ. But I would start with the Environmental Protection Agency webpage. It's a wealth of information that I think not many people use. There is sector-driven information, as well as community page, grants. There are the descriptions of grants that have been previously awarded. So people can look at it and see if they have similar thoughts and, and how other people put it together and was awarded the grant successfully. That's one place that I would start. And then simply just looking at um, those entities who seem to have their foot on the ground solidly and who are engaging with communities. There are some environmental organizations out there that you will constantly see. Mm -hmm. And you see pictures <laughs> right. that show <laughs> that they're in the trenches. Mm -hmm. Do some research. I would always recommend that. Um, it's quite interesting because um, there are just so many perceptions of environmental justice. And, and there are people who kind of have um, just flown in, so to speak, because there's a lot of money involved in this now. There's a lot of opportunity. And so uh, I would look for those who have historically sure. been there. And, and not, if you don't, if you see an organization and they just got their website in 2023, you, right. may, you may want to move on to another uh, organization. But there's certainly a lot out there. Uh, and I see several law firms such as yours have taken on uh, environmental justice and seem to be publishing a lot of articles related to it that provide some a consumer and some uh, producer-driven information. Certainly. So in part, don't reinvent the wheel, right? Go to the, the trusted sources who have been engaged um, in this work for some time. And, and obviously the, the government agencies like EPA who have really been out leading the pack on, on this particular issue. Uh, Bonita, it was so lovely um, to have you join us uh, today on our podcast. Um, and I, I certainly enjoyed this conversation and look forward really to, to reading and, and learning more about your work, particularly uh, with the council. And, and also, um, I know the great work you're doing also here in, in Atlanta. Well, thank Thanks you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's, it was a pleasure always. And um, just to encourage people to to read about environmental justice and certainly if there is an issue in your community reach out to the EPA there's a national hotline you can call or you can reach out to someone in Atlanta if we are if you are in the region 4 area which is basically the eight southeastern states thank you you're welcome thank you for listening to environmental laws with Thompson Hine I hope you found the information shared during today's program valuable. We welcome your questions about today's topic, as well as your suggestions for future programs. You can email me at tanya.nesbitt at thompsonhine.com. If you'd like to learn more about Thompson Hines Environmental Group, please visit our website at thompsonhine.com. 
With approximately 400 lawyers in eight offices, Thompson Hine is a full service business law firm recognized for innovation and client service. Our smart path approach provides clients with services that are predictable, efficient, and aligned with their short and long-term strategic goals. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission.